Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Well, good morning. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Amen. I do, uh, I do want to, before we begin too, I do want to just thank you for uh, supporting the youth group during this, uh, this season, uh, this season of flocking. Uh, if you haven't uh, gotten the birds, uh, you might because uh, we uh, are still putting them out. We wanted to be done by the end of February, but because of some of the blizzards and because of your generosity, uh, the, the, the birds will still be making their rounds uh, into March and uh, yeah, so uh, thank you for, again, just your sense of humor, and if you haven't gotten them, maybe your yard is uh, next. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I also do want to invite you to, uh, again, stick around for lunch following Sunday school today. Because of the blizzards, we haven't had uh, uh, Lenten meals, and we have uh, some soups that are just kind of needing to be eaten. And so stick around following the service for lunch. We'd love to have you uh, come and, and join some, in some fellowship with us this morning. Uh, we are looking this morning at uh, the, the second of Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Last week, Pastor Lloyd introduced us to these letters uh, that, that Jesus wrote in Revelation chapter 1 and then the beginning in, in chapter 2 with the first letter to the church in Ephesus. And again, this morning we are turning our attention to that second letter that Jesus wrote. Uh, this letter is addressed to the church in Smyrna, and we'll talk about that church, that congregation, in a little bit. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to stand this morning as I read, if you are able. Uh, we'll be reading Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, again, reading in Jesus' name. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews but are, and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, again, I give you thanks and praise for this morning, for your word. Father, thank you that we can gather together with your people and gather together in your name. And we hold to the promise of your word that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are here in our midst. And so again, Jesus, we invite you here today. Be our guest. And Father, we ask that you would use these words that you wrote to the church in, in Smyrna uh, 2,000 years ago. We ask that you would apply them to our hearts and our lives today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
As we go through these seven letters, you'll probably notice that there's a bit of a pattern that develops throughout these letters. Uh, First, Jesus addresses uh, the letter to the recipient, then he tells a little bit about himself, and then he says what's right and what's wrong with the congregation. And And then finally, he closes each letter with a final promise. And so that makes outlining these letters sort of of one-dimensional. You probably won't find much difference between the main points of Pastor Lloyd's sermon last week and my outline this week. But the the details of each city, how the author identifies himself, and the the promises that he makes, they are all unique uh, to each city. Uh, So first, let's consider Jesus' audience. His audience is the congregation in Smyrna. That's a fun city to say, isn't it? Uh, if you have your outline there, look at, look at that outline. Uh, there should be a map on there. And I think you will know me well enough to know that I love maps. I can look at maps for hours. So take a look at that map uh, that you have there. Again, Smyrna is the second, the second of these seven cities that received a letter. Ephesus was the first, and it was the major city. It had the largest church. And from there, Jesus dictates the letters to John in the same order uh, that you'd see them in this clockwise pattern on your maps. uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And the reason for this, many, many Bible scholars believe, is that this is the route that a courier would have taken as he delivered the letters. Uh, There's a a big chain of mountains running from the northwest to the southeast. And so going from Ephesus uh, up to Smyrna and then Pergamum and then down the eastern side of those mountains is just a smart way to travel. And so as the courier goes, he stops at each one of these cities and then delivers the letter to them. Uh, Most likely he also delivered copies of the other letters that the churches got and maybe even uh, an entire copy of the book of Revelation would have been given to them as well. But anyway, Smyrna is the second of these cities, the second in this list. And in its day, in the day in which John wrote Revelation, Smyrna was the the crown jewel of Asia Minor. It was the crown of Asia. It was a beautiful, a prosperous city. It was located on the Aegean Sea, and her harbor was very well protected. So it became one of the major centers of trade, of transportation within Asia Minor. Archaeologists have found coins uh, from that era that describe the city as first in Asia in beauty and size. First in Asia in beauty and size. Many of you uh, know that I grew up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and when I was seven, uh, Sioux Falls was ranked by Money Magazine as the best place to live in America. It was a big honor for our, for our city, right, especially when you're seven. And, and I remember thinking as a seven-year-old that, man, now our place is the most beautiful or, the, you know, the best place to live in America. Everybody is going to move here overnight, and it's not going to be great anymore. Um, didn't quite work like that. Uh, but as you drove through town in, uh, in the 90s, there were hundreds of signs that constantly reminded you that Sioux Falls is the best. We were number one. It wasn't beautiful like, you know, places like Boulder, Colorado or Seattle. Washington. There wasn't as much to do in Sioux Falls as there was, you know, in L.A. or in New York, but, but it was home, and we were proud of our designation uh, right for the year, and then that honor went somewhere else for the next year. 
Unlike Sioux Falls, however, Smyrna was the crown jewel of Asia Minor for, for centuries. Uh, even throughout the Crusades and the Turkish rule, Smyrna remained a beautiful city. And in the days of the New Testament, there was a, a, a road that wound around Mount Pragus, one of the, the major mountains in the area. And this road was studded with, with temples to the various gods. Some said that uh, you, when you looked at that road, when you viewed it from the harbor, it looked like a, a necklace that was uh, adorning and encircling the mountain. And then on the top of that mountain, you had the Acropolis, which was a fortified citadel where they had uh, important temples and palaces up there as well. Uh, the Acropolis then was the crown of the city. All this to say, Smyrna was a, was a beautiful city, first in Asia in beauty and size. Smyrna was also a very Roman city. Uh, the Greek Pomer, the Greek Pomer, the Greek poet Homer, <laughs> who wrote the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, he came from Smyrna. Uh, there was temples to the goddesses of Rome in Smyrna. In AD 26, Smyrna outbid 10 other cities for the honor of building a temple to Tiberius Caesar, the reigning Caesar. Historians also tell us that Smyrna was one of the first, if not the first, city to publicly engage in worship of the emperor. A very Roman city. And somehow, we're not told how, we're not told the details, but somehow the gospel, the good news of Jesus, comes to the crown city of Asia, to this very pagan, to this very Roman city of Smyrna. We're not told of any missionary journeys to Smyrna in the book of Acts. We don't know if Paul or Barnabas ever visited. It's possible that Christians from Ephesus brought the good news, but, but however it happened, the gospel came. The good news came and hearts and lives were changed as people were converted to Christ. So that's just a bit about the, the audience. Now let's, now let's look at the author himself. Uh, the author of this letter, Jesus, describes himself this way. In verse 8 he says, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life to life. You know, I don't, I don't think that I would be the only one to admit that quite often the book of Revelation can be hard to understand, right? The book of Revelation can be filled with, with symbols and images, with prophecies that, that cause Bible scholars from all walks of life uh, to disagree and to come to different conclusions, right? And as we come to the book of Revelation, it's, it's easy to get caught up in the, in the midst and the fog of, of uncertainty, and, and I mention that because we, we often need to remind ourselves that first and foremost, uh, the book of Revelation is a revealing, is an uncovering, is an exposition of Jesus Christ. The opening words of the book are this, the revelation of Christ Jesus, the revealing of Christ Jesus. More than anything, the book of Revelation tells us who Jesus is. And these seven letters to these seven churches are no different. Who is Jesus? And to the church in Smyrna, Jesus introduces himself as the first and the last who died and came to life. 
There's not a lot of hidden uh, mysterious symbolism with this description. Uh, Some of them that we'll go through as we read uh, these seven letters, there are a little bit more uh, interpretation that goes on. But this one is pretty straightforward, isn't it? In saying that he is the first and the last, Jesus very simply says that he preexisted before the beginning and he will endure long after. Uh, This coming Wednesday, we will, Lord willing, of course, have our first Lenten service of uh, the Lenten year. And I'm supposed to preach on a text from John chapter 8. I've been sitting on the sermon for a few weeks, so I don't know if I just need to completely scrap it and then start again, or if uh, if it's finally ready to go. Um, But I I say that um, because that those texts that we are going to be studying is the, the text that Aaron read from for us earlier. Uh, the, one of the I am statements of Jesus. In these statements, Jesus declares, again, reveals something about his character, his nature, who he is. And in John chapter 8, uh, the text that we'll, we, again, we read from and we'll look at on Wednesday, Jesus says this about himself. He says, Before Abraham was, I am. And by the time of Jesus, Abraham had been dead, right, for nearly 2,000 years. Abraham is regarded as the father of Judaism because the Lord called him from following other gods to serve the Lord alone. But Jesus says that he came before that. He predates Abraham. I am the first. Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 1. He said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus wasn't just an afterthought of God. He wasn't some backup plan after Adam and Eve screwed it all up. Jesus was in the beginning with God. He was the word through whom all of creation came into being. He is our creator. He is the sustainer of life. He is the Lord of all creation. One author summarized Jesus this way. The one who speaks to the angel of the church in Smyrna is the one who predates all creation and will remain long after it is gone. Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Jesus, he also says, is the one who died and came to life again. Again, Jesus, the beginning and the end, the one who transcends all time and space and history. Jesus died. And he died on a cross, the traditional Roman method for for execution of of criminals. He had done no wrong, committed no sin, and yet they killed him anyway. And while the the Jews and the Romans thought that they were getting rid of a, of a, a troublesome rabbi, the Lord was doing something greater. Through Jesus' death, sin, your sin, my sin, all of our sin was being dealt with once and for all. God sent his son, Jesus, to be that atoning sacrifice for your sin. On the cross, Jesus died in your place and on your behalf. All of God's just judgment upon sin was poured out on his son instead of on you. Jesus died for you. 
And yet for Jesus, who is the beginning and the end, for Jesus, death wasn't the end. There were three days later, he rose from the dead, never to die again, conquering death and proving that the payment for sins he made on the cross was valid. And this reality of Jesus' death and subsequent resurrection forms the bedrock that that all of our hopes, all of our dreams, all of our trust as Christians rest Because if Jesus had not died and and had not risen from the dead, then he could not have been our Savior from sin. If he had not died, if he had not risen from the dead, then, then death would have won and death would be the final outcome for us all. If Jesus had not died and and did not rise from the dead, then then he was not who he claimed to be. He was not God's Son through whom the universe was created. If he had not died and did not rise from the dead, then we, as Paul says, we of all men are most to be pitied. However, and praise the Lord for this reality, Jesus died and was also raised to life again. The beginning and the end, who died and is alive forevermore. Amen. So let's get, into, let's get into Jesus' message for Smyrna. What was he trying to communicate with them? There were five things that Jesus was hoping to get across to the Christians in Smyrna. And first in verse 9, Jesus simply says, I know, I know. He wants his church, his people, to know that he knows about some things, about three very specific issues that they were dealing with. He says, I know your tribulation. Christians in Smyrna were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, in in Christ Jesus. The tribulation that they were enduring isn't mentioned specifically, but uh, he hints at it in the next two things here. He says, as well as your tribulation, the second issue that Jesus was aware of is the poverty of those who were in Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. The, The Christians in Smyrna were poor. Uh, and the believers were not just uh, uh, a poor like because of the inflation. I, I can't afford my seven dollar uh, a day latte. Um, they were they were living below the poverty line. They were well below welfare poor. Uh, the Greek word that's used to describe poor here means an extreme poverty. Those who live below this this threshold lack the basic necessity life. Uh, they were the ones who, as they woke up that morning, they wondered if they were going to eat that day. And then when they went to bed each night, they wondered if they would be able to, to survive the night because of the cold. They woke up hungry. They went to bed hungry. They were clothed in rags. Uh, they might have been on the streets begging for loose change. And it's thought that, that many of the Christians who lived in Smyrna were at one time um, not living in extreme poverty and may have been, in fact, sort of well off. They might not have been the upper echelon, the upper 1% of society, or maybe even living in the middle class, but they weren't worried about the basic necessities of life. However, when tribulation came that Jesus mentioned, they had to choose between following Jesus or keeping their job. They had to choose between denying Christ or being forced out of their homes. It wasn't a pleasant time for the Christians, persecuted by the Jews for the sake of Christ and being shunned by the Romans for their new beliefs. And the Christians in Smyrna chose Christ rather than worldly goods. And because of that, they became extremely poor in the eyes of the world, yet rich 
in a spiritual sense, according to the Lord. I know your poverty, but you are rich. There were blessings for, for these believers that went beyond the physical. Uh, James says that God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. The third thing that Jesus is well aware of is the, the slander that's going on against the Christians in Smyrna. Slander is, is false or malicious statements or reports about someone. And we often use it in conjunction with its cousin, liable, right? Slander appears in speech. Liable applies to written communication. And it's, it's slanderous to make false or malicious statements, basically to, to lie about someone. It might not be a crime you get jail time for, but you can be sued for making slanderous statements against somebody. So what were the Christians in Smyrna being falsely accused of? Um, oddly enough, Christians, not just in Smyrna, but Christians in general, were being uh, accused of things like cannibalism, sexual orgies, and atheism, just to name a few. Uh, they were being accused of atheism, um, being atheistic, because they did not worship the emperor. How come you don't worship the emperor? Don't you believe in the gods? If you believe in the gods, then worship the emperor. But yet, of course, because the Christians would not worship the emperor, they were labeled as atheists. They were also accused of having orgies because they, they called the meal that they would share with one another, their, their potlucks, their uh, soup and sandwiches following the church service, they called them agape feasts, love feasts. And to an outsider who heard that, a love feast might not seem to be above board. And so the opponents of Christianity were looking for every opportunity to bring Christianity down. But what about cannibalism? Cannibalism. Think about that. How would Christians be labeled as cannibals? Well, when they would gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, what was said and what is still said today as the elements are received, as the bread and wine are received, this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And maybe somebody was walking by the door of the church and they heard that. Or they, 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 uh, maybe somebody came in who didn't quite understand what was going on. They didn't understand the, the real presence of Christ in communion. And so they start spreading these, these lies that Christians are cannibals, falsely accused for taking communion. And Jesus, Jesus knew the slander, the poverty, the, the tribulation of those in Smyrna. And he knew what they were going through. And you know what? He knows what you are going through today as well. He knows the trials that you are enduring. He understands grief and loss. He knows what it's like to feel under pressure. <laughs> to, uh, to borrow a, a multi-million dollar advertising slogan, <laughs> he gets us, <laughs> right? He gets us. He knows and he cares. He hurts when you hurt. He, he feels the heartbreak of your loss. He understands grief and anger and, and betrayal. He was faced with all the temptations as we face, yet he did so without sin. He knows how hard it can be to take a stand in the face of persecution. He knows what you are going through. And he invites you to turn to him in prayer and to give those burdens to him to carry. He longs to be your rock and your refuge in times of trouble. He knows. He cares. And so his, his message to the congregation in Smyrna and to the congregation here at Maranatha, it, it continues. In verse 10, Jesus tells them, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear. 
Do not be afraid. Somebody has said, and I really should sit down and take the time to verify this, uh, somebody said that, there are, that the phrase, do not fear, or some similar variation of that phrase, is used in Scripture 365 times. <laughs> Once for each day of the year. And whether it's exactly 365 or, or not, I, I do know that that phrase is repeated quite often. And I, and I think it is because, well, <laughs> we are fearful people who need that reminder not to be afraid. But, uh, but simply stating to somebody, do not fear, uh, who's, who's fearful, is a little bit like telling a, a drowning man to swim. Just flail your arms a little bit more. Just kick your legs a little bit more. You're, you'll, you'll get it. No, not fearing is, is hard. <laughs> not fearing means, means letting go. It means surrendering and releasing control. It means letting the Lord and not you handle the situation. Not fearing means, means trusting in him, even when all around you is, is darkness and when there is no solution to the problem or, or no quick fix to the pain. But yet his message to us time and time again is do not fear. Trust him. He has your best in his heart, even if it seems as right now to be the worst. Do not fear. And this message of do not fear was to be an important one for the congregation in Smyrna because of what was coming. Look at the rest of verse 10. He says this, persecution is coming. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. For behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days will have tribulation. For Christians in Smyrna, the, the truth was that persecution was ongoing. Remember, they were already experiencing tribulation and poverty and slander for the sake of the gospel. Persecution wasn't new to them, but it was about to intensify. They were about to experience a period of persecution that would include imprisonment and testing. And the line about 10 days is interesting, isn't it? Um, there are varying interpretations as to what exactly that means. And depending on your eschatology, depending on how you view end times, you might interpret it differently. Some interpret the 10 days as quite literal. Uh, the Smyrna's imprisonment would only be a, a week and a half, and then they'd be released and go free. Others see the, the phrase 10 days as more symbolic of a, of a short amount of time. The persecution will not last forever. In light of eternity, what's 10 days? It's the blink of an eye. But however you view the 10 days, it's clear that the persecution, the imprisonment, wouldn't be for a limited time. It would not go on forever. Do not fear the persecution that is to come. And Jesus' message to his church in Smyrna wasn't all doom and gloom, heartbreak and misery. There are some very wonderful promises that he gives as well. Two of them, in fact. Now, the first is at the end of verse 10. He says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Earlier I mentioned that Smyrna was the crown of Asia, right? In its heyday, it was the most beautiful, the most glorious city in all of Asia Minor, and those in Smyrna were, were proud of their designation as the crowned city of Asia. And so Jesus, in a very real and a very personal way, makes this promise of a crown of life to those who are in the crown of Asia. And usually when we think of a crown, we think of a, a royal diadem that a king or a queen will wear, right? 
uh, King Charles the, is the King of England. He'll officially become coronated, um, I think, in May, right? And that's the coronation ceremony where they actually take that big old crown that's worth, well, it, it's worth so much it's priceless, right? One of those things. And he will put that on his head for the first time. He will be crowned a king. And usually we think of that word, the crown that's full of priceless jewels, that sort of thing. But the word that Jesus uses for a crown here, Stephanos, is, is not the word for a royal crown. Stephanos uh, better describes a crown that would be given to the winner of a competition. Stephanos were victor's crowns. Uh, the Stephanos were given out at the conclusion of the Olympic Games and other such competition. And although they were made from only olive branches and from leaves of olive trees, they were often accompanied by gold and prizes like olive oil, and they were immensely important. Uh, one author said this, he said, To win such a crown was the greatest prize, a sign of quasi-immortality before all mankind. There's more, though, because uh, than just the crown and the prize that came with it. Uh, the same author said, This Stephanos was a picture of the ultimate prize, a picture of rest from toil and struggle, a picture of a great and glorious reward after a long and bitter conquest. It is the picture of victory. Think about that, right? You've, you've worked hard all season. You've put in the work. You've shown up uh, early and you stayed late in the weight room. You've practiced and drilled and practiced and drilled some more. And then after that, you practiced and drilled even more, right? You, you survived the regular season. You dominated the playoffs. You battled hard in the championship game and you came out victorious. And now the ultimate prize, the rest after all of that work. You've won. You are the champions. While the losers can only look forward to next season, to next year, to another shot, you get to revel in, in the victory and in the glory of victory. You have the crown of victory. And Christian, Jesus promises you the crown of eternal life, the victory of eternal life in the gospel. It's no secret that life on this earth is hard. Struggles and trials of all forms press in from every side. Death and grief are our constant companion. Life is hard. And Jesus offers to you in his word a crown of life. And this Stephanos is the ultimate prize that we as believers have, have staked our hope on, the one that we have longed for, the one that we are, are looking for all our lives are, the one that we have forsaken sin for, the one that we are persecuted for. The Stephanos of eternal life is rest from all toil and struggle. And this victory comes to us by God's grace through faith. It's nothing that we can earn, nothing that we can achieve. It's received by faith in Jesus and what he has done for us, his death and his resurrection for us. And then there's a second promise that Jesus gives. It's found in verse 11, and it's a, it's a parallel to the Stephanos, to the crown of life. This promises that those who conquer will not be hurt by the second death. Look at verse 11. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is, is described at the end of the book of Revelation, chapters 20 and 21. And maybe it's a good idea as you're waiting for communion later on today to, to read through those chapters. 
as you do, you, you, you read uh, about the eternal torment that's reserved for Satan and his followers. Uh, the first death, of, of course, is the death that we will all go through. Uh, that If the Lord tarries, uh, for whatever reason, our bodies stop working, we die, right? The second death is, is a euphemism for the judgment that all people will be subjected to. The second death is a sentence for those who are guilty of sin. And on that day, none will be found innocent. However, and praise the Lord for this, we have a Savior King who loves us and gave his life in exchange for us. He gave himself for you, taking your sin upon him. And on that day, those who have trusted in Jesus will find their names written in the Lamb's book of life. Their sin is forgiven, covered by Jesus, washed in his blood. Jesus paid it all. And the second death cannot hurt you, believer. Yours is the crown of life. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these letters to the church that were written 2,000 years ago but are still important to us today. And Father, we again thank you for sending your Son who has paid it all, who has died in our place and on our behalf. And thank you that in him there is grace and forgiveness and mercy and I pray that if somebody here in this room does not know that forgiveness, that mercy, that grace, do, that they, if they do not know you as Lord and Savior, that you would work in their hearts today, and even as they take communion, may they receive the assurance of the forgiveness of sins found in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.